When I first joined the Army, there was a, a brand of civilian combat-type boots become very popular. They had a tactical look about them, uh, but they were made to wear like tennis shoes. Now, if you know anything about military-issue combat boots, they are not very comfortable at all. These shoes were extremely comfortable, I'm told. And because they looked so much like legit Army-issue combat boots, the Army initially allowed them, and they were wildly popular. Again, combat boots are not particularly known for their comfort, uh, and so soldiers were glad to get to wear something that looked like a combat boot but wore like a tennis shoe. Things went well until the, the combat branches of the army, that'd be like the infantry, the artillery, etc., they went to the field and began to do combat-type stuff in the field. Walk through the woods, go through creeks, climb trees, rappel down buildings, things along those lines. And they soon discovered, when these boots were put to the test of what combat soldiers do, just because something looks like a combat boot doesn't mean it works like a combat boot. They began to fall apart. The soles came off. They ripped in half. The laces ripped. The, the eyelets that held the laces began to tear apart. And many soldiers were left missionally ineffective because they had the wrong boots. The army quickly deauthorized them. Uh, boots are an underrated but very important part of a soldier's gear. The feet aren't covered. You can't walk. You can't run. You can't stand. What's true for the combat soldier is true for the spirit warrior as well. Our command is to stand and keep on standing. And if we are to do that, we must have the right boots. And without those, we will be rendered missionally ineffective and unable to stand. Let's see what our boots are. Open your Bible to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17 is what we'll read. should be on page 898 in the Pew Bible. When you find that, let's get to stand on the reading of God's Word. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against the spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Guide us today as we look at what you've revealed to us in your word. Help us to be sure we are prepared in the gospel so we can stand. Father, spiritual battles are real. They are strong. We are facing them in many ways today in our own lives, in our country, in our churches, and we need, we need to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Lord, we don't want to be casualties. We don't want to be passive. Lord, we want to stand and fight as you've commanded us to do. So our feet must be shod with the right things. Help us today to take what your word has revealed, to apply it to our hearts and make us able to stand. Lord, in the time of temptation where we want to turn and run away, Make us strong and make us bold and make us courageous through Christ. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to determine to stand above all else to stand. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought. 
authoritative speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. Use this message to encourage us, to strengthen us. Help us, Lord, to be the spirit warriors who stand and do what you'd have us to do, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the piece of armor we're looking at today is really important in light of the repeated command to stand. We're to stand our ground and fight spiritual battles. We aren't supposed to retreat. We, aren't, we are supposed to fully arm ourselves with the weapons God has given us and then stand and fight. Now, the primary weapons that Roman soldiers used were slashing and piercing close combat weapons. Swords, spears, things along those lines. Now, without getting graphic, you can just imagine in your mind what happens when large groups of people stand toe-to-toe and slice each other with swords and stab each other with spears and get shot with arrows. The ground becomes covered in blood and gunk and guts and things along those lines. And that would make for a very slippery battlefield. And slippery battlefields are a dangerous battlefield because if you fall in hand-to-hand combat, you're pretty well done. You are at an extreme disadvantage if you are laying on your back and you're almost guaranteed to die in that instance. So the Romans made special sandals that would keep them from slipping and following in the slippery battlefields. They were made of soft leather and they had spikes in the sole kind of like cleats. The spikes dug into the slippery ground giving them stability to stand in the battle. It gave them traction necessary to advance when there was need to take ground against the enemy. The sandals they wore were every bit as important as the shield or the breastplate they carried. We too need the right sandals, the right shoes, the right war boots if we're going to be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand in what the Bible says is that we are to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel is what enables us to stand in the evil day. So standing in the gospel enables us to stand in the evil day. Standing in the gospel enables us to stand in the evil day. And what I want to do, there's three, three points. I want to give you one point, and it's something we have to do. Something we have to do so we can stand. And then I'm going to give you two reasons why the gospel enables us to stand. Right, so first, what we have to do is be anchored in the gospel. Right, because notice what Paul says in verse 15. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now preparation implies, implies diligence on our part. And in this case, it implies we're to be anchored in the gospel. We are to know for sure what the gospel is and what the gospel does. Now this, is, this may seem basic, and it should be. But one of the problems in Christianity today, in American Christianity, is the disturbing, shallow understanding. Many professing believers have about the gospel. Many people who would say they have been born again have a view of the gospel of Jesus Christ which is not at all consistent with what the Bible describes as the gospel of Jesus 
Christ. Now there are two groups of people to blame for this shallow understanding of the gospel. One is pastors and preachers. Right? Part of the blame falls squarely on the shoulders of pastors and preachers and Christian authors who portray the gospel as God's way of giving us all of our wildest dreams. That if you repent and you believe in Jesus, every day is Friday. Your best life is now. Many who would say, come to Jesus and all of your wildest dreams will come true. He will fix all the problems of your life. If you pray a prayer and you come to Jesus, your marriage will be healed. If you pray a prayer and you come to Jesus, all of your financial problems will go away. If you pray a prayer and you come to Jesus, the test results will always come back negative. If you pray a prayer and you come to Jesus, Jesus will shield you in such a way, no problems, no trials, no hardships will ever come into your life. And while those sound good, and they make for happy selling books, that is not the gospel. And they are not the promises the gospel gives to us. The other part of the blame falls squarely on the shoulders of those who believe Such drivel. Those who read and listen to sermons explaining the gospel as those things and believe it, it is their fault too. Scripture says we are to test all things. And we are to hold fast to what is true and reject what is false. If disciples of Jesus would take what is said, test it against the scripture, these things would be clearly rejected. Because the Bible is not subtle about this. The Bible is not unclear about this. Does Jesus promise health and wealth to those who follow Him? The Bible gives a very clear answer. No. Does following Jesus mean I will live a problem-free life? The Bible is clear. Why did Jesus die? What does that mean for me? The Bible is clear. On all of these things. So the reason so many believers have a shallow understanding of the gospel is they have simply been lazy. Too lazy to do the hard work of searching the scripture themselves. To see what the Bible actually says. So what is the gospel? Well, a definition might be the gospel is the good news. God saves people through faith. The sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of Jesus. There's a lot goes into the sentence. I want to try to give a few basics about it via Jesus. So turn with me to Luke 24. Page 808. I hope. Luke 24 verses 46 and 47. Jesus said unto them, It is written, Thus it behooved Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead on the third day, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. 
This passage gives us five truths about the gospel we have to understand in order to be anchored in the gospel so that we can stand in the evil day having done all to stand. First, the gospel is defined and specific. The gospel message is already established. It's already defined. Jesus doesn't give them any sort of a hint that they must figure it out for themselves or go to a community and let that community figure it out in light of their culture and their understanding of things. Also notice the gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How to have your best life now isn't the gospel. God keeps his promises isn't the gospel. How to be the me you want to be isn't the gospel. Live a holy life isn't the gospel. Social justice, caring for the poor, needy and marginalized isn't the gospel. The gospel according to Jesus is Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus is the gospel. The gospel centers on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, the gospel isn't just about a guy named Jesus who lived long ago and was tragically killed by the oppressive religious establishment. No, the gospel is about Jesus, the Christ, the Son, the living God. Came to earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the dead to prove all he had said. It's true, he had the power to forgive sins, to save the lost. The gospel is defined, it's clearly defined, it's very specific. Secondly, the gospel addresses sin. Right? He talks about the repentance or remission of sins. Sins taken away should be preached. So we're not anchored in the gospel if we don't understand how the gospel addresses sin. Now in our day, having the gospel address sin is not overly popular, but it is necessary part of being anchored in the gospel. We can't be anchored in the gospel if we don't understand how the gospel and sin work together because the gospel is the message that Jesus died and rose again. So without sin, why did Jesus die? He died because of sin. The gospel message is that also part that we need Jesus, right? We're going to look at that in a minute. It demands a response from us. Why do I need Jesus? Because of my sin. The gospel demands we take the message to other people. Why? Why do I share the gospel with other people? Because of their sin and they need Jesus. A part of being anchored in the gospel is knowing all have sinned. Fallen short of the glory of God. Part of being anchored in the gospel is knowing all sin is against a holy God. Part of being anchored in the gospel is knowing all are justly condemned because of their sin. Part of being anchored in the gospel is knowing sin is not just some bad thing out there somewhere. Sin is in here. It is in us. It is something we have all done. Part of being anchored in the gospel is knowing sin is not just a mistake we make. Sin is rebellion against the rule and the reign of Almighty God. We do not understand the significance of Jesus' death if we do not address sin. We do not understand the gospel if we do not address sin. Without an understanding of our Sin. We will never understand why Jesus had to die. 
without an understanding of why Jesus had to die, we will never see our need for Jesus. Without this understanding of sin and what Jesus did because of sin, we will start coming up with other ideas as why Jesus came. He came to give us our best life now. He came to make every day Friday. He came so that we could be the me we dreamed we could be. None of that is the gospel. None of that is why Jesus came. None of that will enable us to stand in the evil day. All of those things will leave us falling short. We must understand the gospel addresses sin. Thirdly, we must understand the gospel demands a response. Jesus said that repentance and remission of sins must be preached in His name. And so we tell people, Jesus died for your sin and He rose again on the third day. But we don't just leave it there. There's a response. The gospel is an authoritative message. It's not one where it says, well, I'll I'll contemplate it. There is a response demanded from those who hear. And the response is also clearly defined and specific. Repent and believe. Right? They must repent of their sins to turn away from them. Turn to God and believe in what Jesus has done on the cross. Without repentance and faith, there is no response to the gospel. There is no remission of sins. That is the God-ordained method of responding to the gospel. The gospel demands every person who hears it respond to the message. Fourthly, the gospel is good news. Now, up to this point, some may be saying, that doesn't sound like good news. Jesus died for my sin and my sin is a problem how is that good news well the good news is that there is remission of sins that those sins and that guilt can be taken away right a person who repents of their sins and believes in jesus isn't turning over a new leaf they aren't setting out from that point to do better They have been born again. Their sin, their guilt, their unrighteousness has been taken away. And they have been given the righteousness of Christ. This is why the gospel is good news. There is no other message, nothing else in all of the world, which can remit sin, which can take away our guilt. Only the gospel has the power to do that. And then, fifthly, the gospel pushes back The darkness. In talking about spiritual warfare. What we're doing in Ephesians. What we're talking about ultimately is. Fighting the darkness. Pushing back the darkness. What is the best way. To push back the darkness in Guyman, Oklahoma. What is the best way to push back the darkness in Goodwill, Oklahoma. Poker, Oklahoma. Oklahoma in general. Deep darkness in places like Bulgaria and the Ivory Coast. What is the best way to push back the darkness in those areas? Through politics, through legislation, through putting the right people in charge. Those are the most common answers. Those aren't the biblical answer. Notice what Jesus says. That repentance and remission of sin should be preached in my name among all nations. Beginning in Jerusalem. The way to push back the darkness is through the gospel. This is is really kind of a key thing in spiritual warfare. 
lot of stuff on spiritual warfare, sometimes in the books and things you can find are, are just goofy. Right? That you, you know, you, you cast down the demons of your town and all of these kind of things. We don't find a lot of that in the Bible. The early church lived in a dark era. The people were wicked. They were pagan. They worshipped their God through fornication and through taking part in sex with, with prostitutes, temple prostitutes. How do you combat that kind of darkness? Well, what they did was they went to a town and they preached Jesus and Him crucified. They took the gospel to the nations. And in doing that, they pushed back the darkness. We don't have time this morning to look at Paul's experience in Ephesus. When Paul went to Ephesus and preached the gospel and planted a church, those who made idols were terrified. Nobody was buying their idols anymore. There there, there hadn't been a, a change in legislation. There hadn't been an election. There hadn't been an organized protest. The gospel had gone forth in Ephesus to such a degree, people were burning their witchcraft books. They were throwing their idols away. And the idol makers were going out of business. It was hurting their prophets. The darkness of Ephesus was pushed back just, just through the proclamation of the gospel. What's the solution for the darkness in Gaiman? It's the gospel. What's the solution for the darkness in America? It's the gospel. What's the solution for the darkness in Africa and the Ivory Coast and China and Vietnam and Afghanistan? It's the gospel. That is how we push back the darkness. And if we don't understand that, we are not anchored properly in the gospel. Understanding all of these things is a part of what it means to be anchored in the gospel. We have to be those things. We, we must know and be able to explain those things, right? I mean, it, I don't have time for this. If all you know from that is that that's what the preacher said, you're not anchored in the gospel. You've got to take that and you've got to study that. Right? You, you have to test what I say just as clearly as you touch the goomers on TV. Or the books you may read. And if that's right, then know it. Learn it. Know what it means. Know the message. It is clear and defined. So know what that is. It addresses sin. Know why. Know how to explain it. It demands a response. What is that response? What does that response look like? What happens to those who make that response? Why is a message so reviled by our culture today? Why is it actually good news? How does the gospel push back the darkness? How would it, what would it look like to push back the darkness in Gaiman and beyond? Knowing those answers, knowing those things, that's what it means to be anchored in the gospel. We must be anchored in the gospel or we will not stand in the evil day. We will fall. So, once we're anchored in the gospel, how does it help us to stand? Well, Paul particularly calls it the gospel of peace in verse 15. The preparation of the gospel of peace. There is something about the peace the gospel brings 
that enables us to stand in spiritual battles. And there are two kinds of peace the gospel gives. First, the gospel makes peace with God. Not, not, not the peace of God, but makes peace with God. The gospel enables us to stand in the evil day by making peace between us and God. Now, why do we have to have peace made between us and God? Since Jesus made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him I say whether they be of things of earth, things of heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He hath reconciled. See, Jesus has made peace with us and God through the blood of His cross. Now, the kind of peace Paul is talking about there is the kind of peace that's brought when there are countries who are at war. And there's a state of hostilities and peace is made between them. How many of you, when you were lost, before you came to Jesus, thought of yourself as being alienated and enemies of God? I mean, I sure didn't. That wasn't my thought in life. I was raised in church. I figured, I knew I wasn't saved. But I mean, I figured I liked God pretty good and He liked me pretty good. And there was, all things were kind of okay, but that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that those apart from Jesus are, are, not, are alienated, so they're separated, but they are also enemies of God. Which seems a bit extreme. Unless we understand why. First, the reason it's not extreme is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over all creation. And as such, He has the right to rule. Part of having the right to rule is being able to say what is right and what is wrong. So those who don't come to God through Christ are living in wicked works. They're living in sin. What they're saying is, no one will rule over me. No one's going to tell me what to do. I will do what I want to do and and not even Jesus will tell me what I can or cannot do. A refusal to submit to the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives makes us His enemy. Think about the FBI's most wanted list. What is the person at the top called? Public enemy number one. Why? Well, they have rejected the rule of laws we have adopted in America. And they have made themselves the enemy of the people and of the nation of America. That's exactly what we do when we say Jesus will not rule over me. We are saying the king of the kingdom has no authority over my life. I will not do what he says. And in doing so, it's treason against the king. We make ourselves the enemy. Second reason is Jesus died for their salvation. Those who refuse to submit to the rule and the reign of Jesus declare through their rebellion they don't need Jesus. Through their rebellion they're saying his death It's a waste of time. Think about it just from a human, naturalistic perspective. Let's say there was some sort of incident and your child, in an effort to save someone else, gave up their life so that someone else could live. Then later you saw that person on the news saying, well, that that person didn't have to die for me. I was going to save myself anyway. They didn't really help me. 
I didn't need what they did. That was, that was dumb for them to die. I didn't need that. How would you feel? How would that make you feel about the sacrifice that was being mocked of your child? Don't you imagine that's kind of how God feels about it as well? When someone says, I don't need Jesus, they're mocking. They're rejecting. They're saying, I don't need what He did for me. And that rejection, it leads to a place of hostilities with God. And the cross has brought a peace to those hostilities. It has brought a way for us and God to be reconciled. To be brought to a place where we're not in our soul, in our heart. We're not at war with God. Because that's really where the war is, right? I mean, the war is not with God. Because we're not equals with God. If God were at war with us, we would be obliterated. When God determined to war with people, they just die. The war is in our hearts. The war is in us saying, no. God is reaching out to us. God is calling to us. God has sent His Son to save us. And we're the ones going, no, I don't want that. You know. And what the cross does is brings that to an end. And we go, I do want that. I do need that. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. It's not that we're perfect. It's not that we, we're, we never blow it. It's that we... I'm not at war with God. No, no. I, I know my sin is my fault. I know my sin is a problem. I know it is wrong. But I unconditionally surrender to Jesus. But, and, and that sort of unconditional surrender, that's what it takes. Because the blow that that was dealt through the cross, it, it just issues an unconditional surrender. We must come to God through faith in Jesus. Right? We don't, we're not coming to a negotiating table and saying, okay, okay, so Jesus died for me here, and I'll, I'll do church once a couple times a month, and I'll do this. No, there's just unconditional white flag surrender. There's no other deal. Right? God isn't negotiating with us or with anyone about what it takes to be saved or how to live for Him. There is one plan. And it is through faith in Jesus. And that is the only plan He's offering. And it is either take this plan or live in rebellion and face the soon and sudden judgment of God. When we turn and we come to God and we surrender, that faith, that, that peace... It enables us to stand in the evil day. If for no other reason, then we know we're on the winning side. Because here's the thing. In spiritual battles, we're going to lose. We're going to lose a lot at times. I mean, I would, I would just love to say we're not, but, but reality, and Scripture teaches we are. We're going to lose in our lives. We're going to lose in the lives of those we love. People we fight for are not going to come to Jesus. And man, that's hard. How do we stand? How do we stand when we're fighting and we're losing? And no matter how hard we try, it doesn't seem to fix anything. We know that in the end, we're on the winning side. That Jesus wins. And we get to be a part of that victory. Because we are in Christ. And we have been reconciled to God. Doesn't mean it won't be hard. Doesn't mean it won't be discouraging. But we can stand in the evil day. 
And when the battle is over, we will still be standing. And then the gospel gives us peace of God. Not only does the gospel give us the peace, makes peace with God, it gives us the peace of God. The peace of God is amazing, so great, the human mind cannot fully comprehend it and the world cannot take it away. My favorite verse, possibly the most important verse on the peace of God that we're given, is is this with Jesus. These things that I've spoken unto you that you may have Peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I like this verse and I think it's important because it reminds us peace from God is not a life free problems and trials and hardships and, and troubles. Instead, it's peace in the midst of conflict and hardships and trials. And trouble. And we often we want there to be a divide. And if there's conflict and turmoil in my life, then I don't have peace. But that's not it's not what it's just not what we see in Scripture. You think about Paul. Paul is always a good example for this. Sets a, a demoniac free, is arrested, is beaten within an inch of his life. Tossed into prison. What are they doing at midnight, he and Silas? They're singing and praising God. What kind of nonsense is that, really? All he did was set people free like Jesus came to do. He went where God... He saw a vision, a Macedonian vision, calling him to Philippi. And he did what Jesus called him to do. He did what Jesus empowered him to do. And he was beaten nearly to death for it. But he's singing and praising God. Because he has peace. I mean, what's the the worst they can do to Paul, according to Paul? They can kill him. And if you read like Philippians, what does Paul say in Philippians? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Right? So, if I live, if they don't kill me, I'm going to go on preaching about Jesus. And if they do kill me, I get to go to be with Jesus, which is far better than anything else. And if they leave me in prison and shackle me to guards, I'm going to share the gospel with them and they're going to be converted and they're going to go out and preach the gospel. How? What makes a guy live like that? It's not that Paul was a superhero or a super soldier. It's this. The peace Paul had through the gospel. Paul faced many evil days. And he was able to stand because of the peace of God. See, here's how the gospel enables us to stand. In times of spiritual battles, the conflicts, the hardships, the trials and troubles, Satan wants to whisper in our ears, if you were a good Christian, This wouldn't happen to you. If God really loved you, things would be different. If the Bible was true, this person you love would be saved. If 
God cared, these things wouldn't happen in your life. Haven't you been good? Haven't you done your best? Doesn't God owe you these good results as a response? And if we believe those lies, oh man, it's demoralizing. Because we do wonder at times, and on our best days, in the midst of things, we wonder, why is it not working like it should? Why are my prayers not being answered? Why? Why? Is everything so flipping hard? And if we don't have peace with God through the gospel, we're not going to stand. We're just going to lay down, curl up in the fetal position, and bawl, and give up, and walk away. But the peace that we have with God, the gospel reminds us, we're not promised an easy life. I mean, our salvation was bought with the brutal beating and bloody cross of our Savior. Nothing about that points to a life of ease and comfort. It reminds us that though the world be against us, God is for us. That I can have peace because I know who's in control. I know whose I am. And I know that I serve a Savior who is great and awesome. And I can overcome. I can stay in the battle. He has overcome. So that I can have peace and stand in the evil day. Having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace pictures confidence in the gobble, in the gobble, in the gospel. The government stole an hour of my sleep last night. Big brother's messing with us. Confidence in the gospel enabling us to stand and fight the spiritual battles we face in our lives. Confidence in the gospel allows us to have peace, be able to stand, keep on standing no matter how bad the battle gets. It reminds us of a Savior who's given His life for us, a God who has loved us and reconciled us to Himself, and a peace we can have that is given to us by God and cannot be taken by the world. Though it hurts, Though we're overwhelmed, we can't stand. So I want to ask you, are you anchored in the gospel this morning? And that's that's where it all has to start. There is no peace with God, peace from God, apart from being anchored in the gospel. Now being anchored in the gospel starts with repentance and faith. It starts with you making the decision to respond to the gospel in the way the gospel demands. You turn from your sin. You turn to God in faith. You cry out for salvation. You confess your need for Jesus. And it then requires you to begin to study and get into the Word And know what it says and what it promises and what it doesn't and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And testing all things against Scripture. Holding fast to that which is true. Rejecting that which is false. And as you do that, you will experience peace 
with God. And you will feel your heart stop rebelling. There will still be a lure and an enticement to sin, but you will not want to rebel against God. You will grow to hate your sin, hate your rebellion, hate that in you. You'll understand what Paul says about mortifying, putting to death, and you will begin to pray things like, Oh God, kill this part of me. That's peace with God, enabling us to stand. And then we will experience the peace of God. And in the hardships and in the trials, we will be discouraged. We will be overwhelmed. But we will not back off. We will not let up. We will not quit. Let me close reading a psalm. Psalm 11. David says, In the Lord, in the Lord I put my trust. How say you to my soul, flee as a bird to the mountains? For though the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. The foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Behold, His eyelids try the children of men. That is a man who's anchored in the truth of the Word. Has peace with God and peace from God. Has put his trust in God. He will not flee. The enemies are many. The foundations are being destroyed. But God is still on the throne and He will stand. Pray. Oh, Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And God, we need you. We need you to help us to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Because, Lord, the battles are strong, the fires are hot, and the waters are deep. Turning and running away. It just looks more appealing all the time, Father. But you've not called us to run. You've told us to stand. Anchor us. The power of the gospel. To save. To change. And to make a difference. Anchor us in the gospel so that we're at peace with you. And our hearts long for holiness and obedience through Christ. Give us peace. So when the devil whispers his lies. We can reject them. We can say no. And my God does love me. My God does hear my prayers. Though I don't understand. Why things are the way that they are. I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have entrusted into the end. Because strong in you, strong in the grace that's found in Jesus. So we can stand in the midst of our evil days. 
having done all to stand. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.